0: Well, this morning we're going to keep going in the book of Acts. You just saw our little bumper video. And the subtitle for our Acts series is How the Movement Begins. The Movement Begins. So we've been looking at how does the gospel move? How does the the good news about Jesus, how did it move from a small group of a little over a hundred people at the end of the gospel accounts and... When Jesus is ascended into heaven, there's a little over 100 people in an upper room praying. How did the gospel move so far, so wide to so many people that it got here to us? What happened in the book of Acts? And that's what Luke is writing about in Acts, how the gospel moves. And this week we come to Acts chapter 9. And we're going to cover a lot of ground today and a really important part of the book of Acts. But here's how I want to start off this morning. I want to start off with a question we ask all the time. Hopefully we've asked you, we try to ask everybody, but we say, what's your story? We ask everybody, we say, what's your story? Because everybody has a story and everybody's story is constantly unfolding. And here's the cool thing about your story. You're still right in the middle of it. We were just talking the other day in a staff meeting, we were praying together and we were talking about that question, what's your story? And how at times it's unfair because you can tell your story, but you don't have a full view of, of what's going on in your story right now. And, like, you can tell your story even up until today, but you don't have a clear perspective. And you may never have a clear perspective on what God's been doing in your story all along the way. So, like, for Carrie and I, we can tell the story of how we have three kids and two of them are still in the foster care system. And we think God's doing certain things in our life right now. And we think God's teaching us certain lessons. But my guess is in a year we'll have a different perspective. In two years, five years, ten years, ten years. 50 years, we'll have a very different perspective on our story that's unfolding right now. Because the beauty of your story is that you're still living it. You're still in the process of your story. And so what's neat when we look at the book of Acts is that a lot of these characters we see, they're living out their story right now. They're still in process. They're in the middle of their story. And, And the opposite of being in the middle of your story is thinking you've arrived in your story thinking that, man, God's taught me all he needs to teach me, and I think I am who I'm going to be, and man, I'm grateful for all that God's done, and I'm arrived. And I think what we're going to see in the story today is that that's never true for any of us. We've never arrived. Our story's never over until we're gone and we're with Jesus. And so what we're going to see in Acts chapters 9, 10, and a little bit of 11, I told you we're covering a lot of ground, is that God uses our process for the progress of the gospel. God uses our process for the progress of the gospel. So let's dive in right here, pick it up in Acts chapter nine, verse 32. Let's dive into our first main point today, and here it is. God is in control over the process of his people. God is in control over the process of, of his people. Read with me in Acts chapter 9 verse 32. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas, which means in English like gazelle. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. When he arrived, they took him to the upper room all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. Turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a tanner. So right here at the end of Acts chapter 9, it's pretty interesting we have these two miracles. and I really wrestled this week with, why did God put these here? Because we've taken a break from reading about Peter. If you remember in Acts, Peter's the one that preached in Acts 2 at Pentecost. Peter's kind of the main spokesman for the early church in the first few chapters. But then we take a break. We read about one of the disciples named Philip. We read about how God saved Saul, who later, he goes by Paul who wrote most of the New Testament. So we kind of take a break from reading about Peter and then all of a sudden in Acts chapter 9 verse 32, Peter's right back on the scene. Now as Peter is going here and there, I mean he's, he's moving about, he's going and checking on the churches and the disciples that are around. They just kind of have these two miracles. Well there's a man named Aeneas who's paralyzed, he's been paralyzed for eight years and Peter just says, Jesus Christ heals you, get up and walk. Then he looks at Tabitha who died and he prays and says, Tabitha arise and Tabitha comes back from the dead. What's the purpose of these two miracles? Right here in Acts chapter nine, I think think their purpose can be found in actually the larger context. Because we can't just read these two miracles and then act like there's nothing else going on around it. What happens is there's a miracle of being paralyzed and being able to walk, being dead and being alive again. But then if we keep reading in chapter 10, we actually see, I wonder if Luke's trying to show us a bigger miracle. Because Peter is not just healing people randomly. God is affirming something in Peter. Remember, God is in control over the process of his people. So what God's doing in Peter's life is he's affirming his ministry. God's affirming that he's still working through Peter. He's encouraging Peter. Do you remember Peter's story? He was a disciple of Jesus, and he was on the front lines with Christ. He was on the front lines with Christ. I mean, he was one of the three that was closest to Jesus he went up on the mountain with Jesus called the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus showed the disciples his full glory. And he shone like the sun. Peter was there. Peter was there when Christ was crucified. In fact, Peter tried to stop him from being crucified because he said, Jesus, I love you so much, I'm not letting this happen. Peter kind of had a big mouth and a quick mouth. And, he, and later on he said, Jesus, I'm never going to deny you. I'll never turn my back on you. Jesus said, yeah, you will. Three times actually before the rooster crows. And that's exactly what Peter did. Peter had, do you remember Peter's story? He's been with Jesus. He's had highs with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, seeing Jesus in his glory. He's had lows with Jesus denying him before he was crucified. But then imagine what comes after that. He he preaches in Acts chapter two, the Holy Spirit comes and thousands of people are gathered around to celebrate Pentecost. And Peter gets up and explains the gospel and it says thousands of people turned, and believed in Jesus. What a mountaintop experience for Peter. But we learn in Acts chapter nine that God's not done with Peter. He's not arrived. Peter is still working. There's still ministry going on, but what we learn in Peter's life is that the work is all God's, not Peter's. Notice that Peter says, Jesus Christ heals you. And then when he's talking to Tabitha, he doesn't work some magic to try to raise her from the dead. He prays and then all he does is call out what God's already done. And says, Tabitha, ri- rise up. I mean, God's raised you from the dead. So God's still working through Peter. God's encouraging Peter. But then let's go read the first part of Acts chapter 10 and see how else God's sovereign over the process of his people. Let's look at Cornelius. Look at God's word with me. Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he, Cornelius, called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So now do you see Peter in this larger context that while this is going on in in Lydda and then in Joppa, Peter's here doing ministry. Over here in Caesarea, not too far away, a couple days journey, there's this man named Cornelius and he's a, he's a military leader. He leads a cohort. So he leads a group of a hundred men. So he's a leader. He's got people, as you see here, he's got servants. He's got people who attend to him. And it says he's a devout man. He fears God. He gives alms. So he's generous. He gives to charity and he prays continually to God. So here's, let's be careful. We're not reading that he's a Christian here. We're actually reading that he's someone that God is softening his heart and preparing his spirit to become a Christian, though. Right? I think, I think we maybe have in our story that at some point in our life, maybe before we put our faith in Jesus, God began to soften our heart to the things of God. And we began to go, okay, hey, there's something. I don't, I don't know what it is, but there's definitely a God. Maybe even a part of your story is that you've talked to him before you were a Christian and you were like, all right, God, I know you're there. I know you're somebody. I know you're working. I don't know how, I don't know everything about you, but, but I know you're there. So when we read Cornelius here as this devout man who's fearing God, don't, don't read that he's a Christian yet, but read that he's somebody that God's preparing his spirit. God's preparing his heart to receive the gospel. And remember our point that God is in control over the process of his people. So he encourages Peter, and while he's encouraging Peter, he's speaking to Cornelius, and then right as Cornelius sends his men to go find Peter, Let's read Acts chapter 10, verse nine. The next day, Cornelius' men were on their journey and approaching the city. Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that's common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. That's Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 16. And here we see God working in Peter again. So are you following what's happened? God's affirmed the ministry of Peter. And while Peter's performing this ministry, at the same time, God's working in Cornelius' heart to say, hey, I know you fear me. I'm about to give you some more direction about who I am. But here's your next step. Go find a man named Peter. So while Cornelius' men are going to find a man named Peter, God gives Peter a vision. This is kind of a weird vision for us, right? He he falls into this trance which really just means he has this vision from God of this sheet coming down from heaven. It's got all animals on it. And this voice says, "Rise, Peter, kill and eat." And Peter's response is, "I've never eaten anything common or unclean, and I'm not going to start now." What's he talking about? What is Peter talking about when he says that? He's actually referring to the Old Testament where many of us quit our Bible reading plans in Leviticus about dietary laws that there were laws that God gave his people certain things to eat and not to eat. And the purpose of these laws was that God's people would be distinct from all the nations of the world. And the reason they would be distinct is because the Old Testament mission was for God's people to be so distinct and so different that it would attract the nations into them so that they could meet God. So in the Old Testament the mission was this, oh, you're going to live so different. You're going to eat so weird and funky that every nation around you is going to look at you and go, why are you distinct? And they're going to be attracted into you. But what God is trying to show Peter here in Acts chapter 10 is that that's not how his mission works anymore. The distinction no longer comes from the kinds of diet that you do or don't eat, but your distinction comes from the fact that you now have the gospel. God's breathed his spirit into his people, and instead of attracting the nations in, he has sent his people out to go proclaim the gospel. So in the Old Testament, The Jews had to be completely and totally different from the rest of the world in order to be faithful to God. But now in the New New Testament, what we see is that God has made his people different and sent them out into the nations to tell everybody about who God is. So while God was preparing a Gentile, Cornelius, to hear the gospel, he's preparing Peter, a Jew, to preach the gospel. So this vision sets up the fact that God's saying, hey, don't think clean and unclean anymore. You're right with me through Jesus now, not because of the dietary laws you happen to keep. You're right with me through Jesus. So don't think that food's clean, unclean. I've made all things clean. But the point's not really the food. The point's the people. He's setting Peter up to think about people differently. Hey, don't think Jews and Gentiles, clean and unclean. Don't think a Gentile's got to become like a Jew for you to have fellowship with him. Don't think like that. So when we read this story, we're confronted with a choice: Are we going coincidence or are we going sovereignty? Are we thinking all this is just like, well, that's just crazy. All that I mean, that's just so lucky and random. And look at that coincidence: that Peter's learning this lesson at the same time a Gentile sending for him, and that Peter's really encouraged in his ministry because God's been doing these things through him. Or are we going to come over here and say, this isn't coincidence at all. This is God's perfect plan because he's in control over the process of his people. We're confronted when we read this story. Which route are we going to take, coincidence or sovereignty? And I think when we start to apply these truths to our life, that God is in control over the process of his people, we see a few different things. First, we see that God prepares people to speak the gospel and God prepares people to hear the gospel. So how is God preparing you? How is God preparing you? Maybe you think back on your story and you think, how has God prepared you? Do you remember when you heard the gospel and for the first time it clicked and you feel like you had faith in Jesus for the very first time? How did God prepare you for that? How did, I know for me, God prepared me over years. I mean, I heard the gospel thousands of times before the day when I was 14 years old and I first put my faith in Jesus. God prepared me by sending me godly parents, by putting me in a healthy church where I heard the gospel often. And I had to hear it a lot. But how is God also preparing you to speak the gospel? Because let's go back to our question, what's your story? That you have a story that's so unique and so different that it can speak into other people's lives and they can resonate with it in ways that mine can't. And in that way, at times, you're a more powerful missionary than I could ever be as a pastor. But God's prepared you to preach the gospel. God's prepared you to hear the gospel. How is God preparing you this morning? Is He preparing you to hear it? Is He preparing you to speak it? Well, here's the next point of application. We're seeing God's in control over the process of His people. You are in the middle of God's process. You are in the middle of God's process. You know, the opposite of process, I think, is arrival. I think one of my biggest weaknesses in the Christian life is longing for a place of arrival, thinking that I've arrived, thinking that at some point in the future, I've always had this idea since I was a little kid that at some point in the future, there's going to be this point of arrival, right? And when you're young, you can't see past you know, middle school or high school or college or marriage, and you keep thinking at, at, the next, at the next point of achievement, it's going to be this place where, like, that is life. And then you're going to be joyful and happy. You're going to have everything you need or want, and you're going to arrive. But the truth from this passage is, what if, let's take highs and lows. What if Peter, at, at his highest point, preaching at Pentecost, seeing thousands of people come to know Jesus, what, what if Peter thought he arrived? He said, man, I'm hanging it up. It can't get any better than this. God's done with me. Do you see how how much he's using me? Clearly God's using me so much because I'm that good. So I I gotta hang it up. I think God's done with me. I'm done. But that's not how God works because we see in Acts chapter nine and 10 that God is still trying to teach Peter things. God's still trying to teach Peter. Or, Or what if at his lowest point, what if Peter had denied Jesus three times and he said, I'm done. Like, I'm clearly not on the same team as Jesus. I've denied him three times. There's no way his grace is going there. I've arrived, but it's at the wrong point. And guess what? I'm done. There's no hope for me to turn back. I'm done. I'm out of this. The good news for all of us is you can never hit a point so high that you no longer still need God. And you've never hit a point so low that God will not still take you back. You are still in God's process. And if you're still breathing, God's not done with you. There's still parts of your heart that need to be explored by Jesus. There's still parts of your mind that he wants to renew. There's still actions and activities that he has for you. Good works he's prepared beforehand for you to walk in so that you would bring him glory and it would bring you joy. You're in the middle of God's process. So don't rush to get out of it. Don't rush to get out of this season. Don't rush to get out of this point that God's brought you to in your life. Slow down, breathe, look around and ask, what is God doing in me during this season? What's God doing in me during this process? This doesn't mean you're going to know it all or learn it all. Remember, what's your story? You don't fully understand your story and I don't think any of us will until we get to heaven and look back on it. But it's good for us to reflect because as we reflect on our life, we learn what God's doing in our hearts. Peter didn't understand what God was doing by giving him that vision. In fact, we're about to read that he was perplexed and confused. You may not understand what all God's doing in your process at this moment in time. But I want to encourage you this morning, trust him in the process. Even though you can't see where all your process is going, he can, and he's the one that brought you here. He can, and he's the one that brought you here. So the Christian life is not about a destination that we're trying to arrive to. It's about a direction, and our direction is Godward. John Piper says that God, at any point, is doing 10,000 things around us. We may only be aware of three of them. We may only be aware of three of the 10,000 things that God is doing. So first, we've seen from the first part of this text that God's in control over the process of his people. That we are in process, but he's in control of it, even if we can't see it all. The next part that we're going to see is that God's in control over the progress of his word. God's in control over the progress of his word. Let's pick up in Acts chapter 10, verse 17. And see what happens. God's prepared Peter. He's prepared Cornelius. Now what happens when they come together? Read with me verse 17. While Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate, called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, this is God speaking to Peter, behold, three men are looking for you rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation for I have sent them and Peter went down to the man and said I'm the one you're looking for what's the reason for your coming and they said Cornelius a centurion upright God-fearing man well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say so you invited them in to be his guests okay are you following this Cornelius doesn't know why, but he's supposed to send for Peter. Peter doesn't know why, but he's supposed to go to Cornelius. Is God in control or is this all coincidence? Is God in control or is this all coincidence? So it says, The next day Peter rose, went away with him, and some of the brothers from Joppa went with Peter, accompanied him. On the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. So when Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Referring back to his... Vision. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. So I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, your alms have been remembered before God. Send to Joppa, ask for Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and now you've been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we're all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. As we keep reading, we see in the next few verses, Peter shares the gospel, and then in verses 44 through 48, God sends his Holy Spirit down. So while God's in control over the process of his people, he's also in control of the progress of his word, and here's how. He sends his messenger with his message and pours out his spirit. God's in control of all this. So here's the first point of God being in control of the progress of his word. Sometimes knowing does not come before going. Sometimes knowing does not come before going. Sometimes you're not going to know the whole plan. You're not going to know every step that's coming, but God still calls you to go. I mean, it took a little bit of faith for Cornelius to send some men to Peter. Because right? if, we're, if we're taking the coincidence route of this story, what happens when the men get there and, and they're like, there's no Peter here? Like, how do they go back to their boss and be like, hey, boss, there's no Peter? Or what happens if Peter is there and they show up and they're like, hey, Cornelius has called for you. And Peter's like, okay. And he shows up to Cornelius' house and doesn't have anything to say. But right? if you're taking the coincidence route of this story, all this seems to make no sense at all. But Cornelius didn't know why he was sending for Peter, and Peter didn't know why, but he was supposed to go with Cornelius. But God was in control over the progress of his word. There are no accidents in God's plan. Because these two men who didn't know each other, didn't know how it was all going to work out, God caused their paths to cross perfectly so that the word of God could progress into the Gentile people. This is where The gospel first goes away from the Jews and towards the Gentiles. Which is good news for us because most of us, I'm assuming, are Gentiles, not Jews. This is a powerful place. You see how God's in control of this? Knowing does not always come before going. We learn that from Peter and Cornelius. But second, look at this. God does not put you in situations to fix it, but so that he can work through you to fix it. Do you notice that this whole text? There's no way we can walk away from this and think, well, oh, boy, that Peter. What just a perfect disciple. First of all, if you know his story, you know that's not true. But if you read this story, look at how many times the verb is attributed to God and not Peter. God used Peter who didn't know everything. I, I qualify to be used in that way. Right? God used Peter in these miracles for something he didn't have the power to do. He couldn't heal. He, Jesus Christ heals you, Aeneas. He couldn't raise someone from the dead, so what's he do? He's on his knees praying. Hey, I, I qualify for that kind of position. What kind of people does God use to, to move the gospel forward? People who don't know everything and don't have the power to do everything. I think we all qualify for that kind of role. So how does the gospel move forward if we don't know everything and we don't know every answer and we don't have the power to do it? Because the power to move the gospel forward is not ours. God is in control of the progress of his word. God is in control of the progress of his word. As I was reading this text, I, I kept thinking about a passage in Galatians chapter 2. Paul's writing and he's telling them the story of, uh, of Peter. Peter. So this happens after the story in Acts, if you're looking at it on a chronological timeline. He tells them the story of Peter and how Peter's down fellowshipping with some believers who were not Jews. He's eating with them. He's having fellowship with them. And then some Jewish people came down, Jewish leaders came down, and it says Peter pulled back from them. As if to say like, no, 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 no. I wasn't fellowshipping with them in that way. Like we don't have that kind of close fellowship. Like I'm glad they have the gospel, but, but I get to be really Jewish. I still have to be over here. So what does Paul do in Galatians 2? He just calls Peter out. He says, you've completely missed the gospel if you think your relationship with other people is still based on the Jew-Gentile distinction. You've completely missed it, and you're not living in light of the gospel. You're making those brothers feel less than you, which because of the gospel, we're all even. We're all saved by the same grace. So here's why I thought of that passage. Peter After this, where God's already taught him the lesson, he's given him the vision, he sent him to Cornelius. It's clearly not coincidence. It's clearly God's control and sovereignty. If Peter went through all that and still, in Galatians 2, still didn't get it, still thought he couldn't associate with Gentiles, still thought there was something better about Jews than Gentiles, why did God use Peter here in Acts 10? It seems like from Galatians 2 that Paul understood it better. Right? He's the one that corrects Peter. He's the one that says, come on, Peter, you know this isn't right. You know it's Jew, Gentile, we're all in one body now. You know we're all... Bro- so why does God use Peter and not Paul here? I think God delights to use us in the areas of our greatest weakness so that his power can shine all the brighter. Right? If you use somebody who's already strong in this area... Somebody goes, well, why'd that work? Well, he's great. Right? I mean, he's great at it. Like, if the church, if all we ever use is marketing to build our church, and we get the marketing geniuses in here, and we spend the most money, and all our budget goes to that, and it goes, man, how, how did that church explode in numbers? Well, they got the marketing guru. Right? I mean, that, that marketing, it's worked for every business that's ever used it. So that's how they attracted all the people but that's not how the church ought to grow and that's not how God works. God delights to use us in the areas of our greatest weakness. He doesn't want to use us always according to our strengths, but he wants to use us in the area like Peter where we're weakest. So that at the end of our story, we can look back and go, yeah, I was in process. I was in process, but God still used me. Do you see God's incredible grace there? Do you see how, how much of a jerk I was to those Gentiles? But God still saved them. You see, God actually used me as a terrible example of the way I treated those Gentiles. So Paul can include that in the letter to Galatians and now churches all over the world can preach from Galatians too and say, hey, we're all one body. But see, we're all in the middle of our own story. We're all in the middle of a process. And God's in control over the process of his people and he's in control over the progress of his word so much that the way God has chosen to progress his word is through the process of his people. God's not waiting on us to be done with our process to use us. God's not waiting on us to be done with some sort of like arrival, achievement. I mean, you've arrived at the destination, Christianity, now I can use you. Now you can bear fruit. Now you can see people saved. Now you can make a disciple. Now you can be a leader. Now you can be a pastor or a missionary. Hey, once you've arrived in now, okay, now I'm gonna start using you. The story of the entire Bible is God using people who had no business being used of God. I mean, we hear the story of David and we go, man, he was a man after God's own heart. And that that more means like God's own heart chose David than it means like David just loved God so much. So what happens is God takes David, an adulterer and a murderer and a liar, prideful, and uses him to establish a kingdom in Israel. It's so like we shouldn't idolize David as the perfect one there. We should go, oh my goodness, God's grace is so good that he wants to use someone who's in the middle of a process, in the middle of a story, to progress his word. I pray that this pattern in Acts 9, 10, and 11 w- w- would be the pattern of our life. This morning, would you trust with me that you're in the middle of God's process? And you don't have to figure it out. That's not what God's called you to. God's called you to trust him in the middle of your process. God's called you to trust that he's working all things together for your good and for his glory. So while you're in the middle of your process, will will you trust God with me? But then will you also trust that God can use us to progress his word among neighbors and nations, he's not waiting on us to have the perfect gospel pitch. Right, like you you don't have to go through all the right gospel sharing training to learn how to share the gospel with your neighbors because God wants to use you right in the middle of your process. God wants to use your imperfect wording, your stumbling over the right thing to say and you're not quite sure the answers to their questions. God wants to use your faithfulness reach them. God wants to use our collective faithfulness as an imperfect church to attract people to the perfect Savior. So as in every passage of scripture, the spotlight is on Jesus, not on us. The call is not for us to be perfect so God can use us. The call is not for us to be done with our process. The call is for us to trust God in our process because he's in control of it all. So to close our sermon today, I I want us to have a time of prayer together before Jay comes up and we sing some more. So would you pray with me? And as we pray, every time we hear God's word, I, I want us to pray, how does this work in my life? How does this truth get down into my heart? I hope you're encouraged that we're all together in the middle of process. We're in the middle of God's process and God's in control of it. So whatever has been causing you anxiety lately because you can't control it, uh, I'd like to pray this morning that, that you would trust God and open up your hands and give it to him. God, I... I want to open up my hands and give you, give you my parenting and my marriage. Trusting God that I can't, I will never be the perfect husband. I will never be the perfect father. But you'll still use me as a husband and a father for your good purposes. And you're still working good things in me even though I'm still imperfect. Thank you for that, God. Thank you for the promise in Philippians 1 that you're going to finish the good work you've started in us. But right now, you're still working. So help us to submit to your work in our life. Thank you for using Peter. Again, God, thank you that Peter didn't quit at the highest experiences of his life and the lowest experiences of his life. But God, you continued to teach him, continue to mold him, Continue to take him through the gospel process so that you could use him in Acts 10 to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Thank you for that, God. Now, would you take all of us through the gospel process? Which will include high times and low times? Which will include poverty and maybe for some of us riches and maybe for some of us somewhere in between? which will include challenges and suffering and pain and death. God, for all of us, the gospel process includes the whole story of life. Would you give us faith to believe that you're working everything in our life for the one purpose of working the gospel into our hearts so that we love you more? God, help us to turn our eyes to you in every season of life knowing that every stage you're taking us through is a part of your process to make us more like Jesus, to help us see you more clearly, to help us love the things of this world less and love you more. And then God, as a, as a group of imperfect people, would you use us right smack in the middle of our process to, to progress your word into our community, among our neighbors, and all the way to the nations, God. I pray that our message to our neighbors and the nations would not be how perfect we are or would not in any way try to say, hey, come into our church that has the answers, but we would, stumbling, fumbling forward, call people to look up to you just like we're doing. Thank you for your great grace, Jesus, to love us though we're imperfect. And it's true that nothing is sweeter than your embrace because you shouldn't love us. You should condemn us. You should show us your wrath. You should cast us out of your presence because we've turned our backs on you. So when you embrace us, it is shockingly sweet because you should have never embraced us, but because of Jesus, you do. So help us to live as those loved by Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We're going to stand up and sing. I'm going to be down here singing, and I'd be more than willing to pray for you and with you for God's word to work into your heart. So, Jay, sing for us.